Tonight we are going to look at Matthew chapter 12, uh, verses 31 and 32. Matthew chapter 12, um, we'll look at verses 31 and 32. Um, I'm going to begin the reading in verse uh, 25, though. So Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 25, before we hear God's word, if you would, join your hearts together with me in prayer. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, our dying lamb, we thank you that your precious blood will never lose its power until your ransom church is saved from sin no more. And so we appeal to the power of your blood shed on the cross that you would open our eyes and our ears to see and to hear the glory of your sacrifice revealed in this portion of Scripture. Do this good work to the praise of your glory. We ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 25. Beloved, this is the word of God. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. This is the word of God. Jesus begins this section in verse 31 by saying, therefore, which means that what he says here in these two verses is connected with what he said in the previous verses. So because of this, then this. Since this is true, then this is true. And what did Jesus say before? Well, first of all, we need to set up what Jesus said with what Jesus had done. Jesus, in verse 22, we are told, miraculously healed a blind and mute man who was demon-possessed. Jesus healed him. He cast out the demon or demons and then made the man able to speak and to see again. That is what he did. Now, naturally, this was an amazing thing to witness. The crowds were amazed that he could speak and uh, he could uh, hear again. The crowds were amazed and began to ask themselves about this person who just performed this wonderful deed. Could this be the son of David? Is this God's Messiah? It's essentially what they were saying. The Pharisees, naturally, of course, they didn't like this. They heard what the crowds were saying about Jesus. They didn't like it. They didn't like that the crowds were amazed by Jesus. They didn't like that they were possibly recognizing him as the son of David. They didn't like that. They also saw what happened. They couldn't deny its power, and so they attempted to explain away the power of Jesus by saying Jesus cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And so the Pharisees, they slandered Jesus here. They slandered him 
before the people, they blasphemed him, and they blasphemed his power revealed in the miracle. They were blaspheming the power and the glory revealed in the actual miracle itself. Of course, they were blaspheming Jesus, but they were also blaspheming his work, which is also to take the name of the Lord in vain. It is... It is not just that we can't blaspheme the name of God or the name of Jesus. We should not also blaspheme his work either. Now, what is important for us to appreciate in order to properly understand uh, these words, I think, in verses 31 and 32, is the thrust of Jesus' response to to their slander, to what the Pharisees were saying about him. Now remember, a demon has just been powerfully cast out from a man. And he has been healed. He was blind, now he can see. He was mute, now he can speak. I said he was deaf earlier. I was, I was wrong on that. He was blind and mute. So now he's blind and now he can see. He was mute and now he can speak. And what is Jesus' own interpretation about this moment in history? Jesus has just performed it. What does Jesus say about all of this. Well, essentially, what he says is this, verse 28, by the Spirit of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. That was Christ's interpretation of his own work. The kingdom of God has come upon you, and that by the Spirit of God. And so this, this miracle, one among many, done in the power of the Holy Spirit by God's chosen servant, Jesus the Messiah, God's beloved Son, was undeniable proof that the kingdom of God had arrived in history. And so this is a unique moment in history. This is Jesus' interpretation of what was happening. You see what happened here with this blind and mute man? It's proof that the Spirit of God has ushered in the kingdom of God on earth. The kingdom of heaven has come down to earth in the person of Jesus and was right in front of their faces. That is, that is what his own miracles mean to Christ as the Messiah. The kingdom of God has come. Now this is an important point to get if we want to properly understand, I think, Christ's words about sin and blasphemy in verse 31 and 32 here. We can easily get tripped up here with what is said. With the coming of the kingdom of God into history in Christ, there was only one beginning point that would not be repeated. And that beginning point is found here in Matthew, in the Gospels. The Gospel of Matthew for us in in this series. That is the beginning point. Again, Jesus' words, verse 28, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Past tense, meaning it's here The beginning point has come. There will not be another beginning point. It it has come upon you. Now, with this said, we have to understand that the kingdom of heaven still advances today. It came when Jesus came to earth, but it still advances today until it comes in its fullness at the end of the age. In verse 32, Jesus refers to that day, the age to come. And so there is a culmination point of this kingdom that has come, that continues to grow. 
It advances in the hearts and minds of God's people. That is how the kingdom of God advances in the world. As people are drawn to Christ, as they are built up in Christ, as they are incorporated into the church, as they become more and more like Christ, that is how the kingdom of God advances in the world. And this will happen until the kingdom of God is consummated on the last day, the last judgment when Christ returns. When Jesus comes a second time and a final time to consummate the kingdom and then ushers in the age to come. That is what Christ himself refers to here, the last day. Until that day, until the age to come, the kingdom of God advances in the world. Again, saints are built up and the elect are drawn to the gospel. And so the church prays now and has been praying for 2,000 years Your kingdom come. Your kingdom continue to advance in the world. Your kingdom grow. Satan's kingdom slowly but surely be destroyed. But this coming kingdom, again, that's still coming, that's still advancing, it had one beginning point. There was one beginning point to this kingdom that has come, and we weren't there. None of us sitting here were there. Peter was there. John, Matthew, the other disciples were there when the, kingdom, when the kingdom of God began on earth, when its beginning point was seen. The Pharisees were there. And so the miracles, the cross, the resurrection, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the miracles by the apostles in the book of Acts, all of these events are all tied to this one historical moment, the coming of the kingdom of God. They're all tied to one point in history that would not be repeated again. I hope you can see that. It's important, I think, to understand that biblical truth in order to understand verses 31 and 32. The kingdom of God has come upon you. Since that time, the time of Jesus, the time of the apostles, God has given us his word. He has caused men to write down his word and so now we don't have miracles as such we have the written word of God we have God's word the old and new testament and therefore old and new testaments and therefore for us today we don't have miracles we don't have apostles but we do have the words of the apostles we have God's word we have Matthew's word for example which tells us about the miracles that happened when that beginning point started for the kingdom of God. So that is, uh, that is what Jesus is saying here about his miracles and about this moment in history that happened once 2,000 years ago. Let me give you an illustration. Some of you teenagers who are here today, you might appreciate this. Um, perhaps you can remember your one-year-old birthday. Maybe you can't. Um, But you would probably know that when you turned one, your parents probably got you a new pacifier or a new new play toys for your baby seat to play with when you're riding in the car. Uh, They probably got you one-year-old size clothes for your little one-year-old body. It would be strange on your 16th birthday if your parents got you the same exact present, would it not? Why is that strange? Well, partly because you only turn one 
once. You're now 16. Lots of things have changed after that. One time in your life. You turn one year old one time and you don't do it again. So you don't continue to get one-year-old presents every birthday. Well, the same historical principle is at work here. The initial coming of the kingdom, the birthday of the kingdom of God on earth, associated with Christ's first coming, happened once. And it was reported about and written about here in the Gospel of Matthew. And that's what we're discussing tonight. Some of the things that Jesus said and preached during this one, that, this initial moment in history, some of the things that he said, of course, they are relevant for every generation, right? His words are relevant for every generation to think about and to obey. You might think about uh, the Sermon on the Mount, or you might think about Christ's command at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, where he says, make disciples of all nations, right? Those words, obviously, aren't tied to one moment in history. They're to be obeyed in every generation, right? Uh, to, to love your enemies and pray for them from the Sermon on the Mount. That is something that every generation is to uh, obey. But some of the other things that we hear about and see in the Gospels have to be understood and interpreted by their historical setting. And that is what I think we have here. We have to understand the historical setting to understand these words that Jesus says. When Jesus speaks about sin and blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and about the hope of forgiveness, that is what we need to understand or to appreciate is the historical setting. He's talking about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and the hope of forgiveness or the lack of hope of forgiveness. Now, two times here he mentions sin or blasphemy against the Spirit. And two times he says that this type of sin will not be forgiven. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, twice he said, or sin against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And he said this within earshot of the crowds and his disciples. And obviously, they were written down. Now, we're, we get to hear them and think about them. And so Jesus says these words, I think, to emphasize the terrible consequences of the Pharisees' actions and their words at this time. They won't be forgiven, in other words. They are blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. They are sinning against the Spirit by blaspheming Christ's uh, works By slandering Jesus, they are contending against the coming of the kingdom in history. That is a sin that is uh, that is a sin that they were participating in that will not be forgiven. And why? Because it reveals the hardness of their hearts. What were they doing? They were maliciously and violently, with seared consciences, contending against the initial coming of God's heavenly kingdom on earth. They were fighting against it. They were trying to stop it. Such dark and malevolent pride proved that they were, in fact, sons of the devil, and that fact would not change. In fact, Jesus calls them this in verse 34. You brood of vipers. And so, at bottom, they are of a different breed. 
There is no hope of forgiveness for them. Just as there is no hope of forgiveness for Satan, Jesus proclaims there will be no forgiveness for those individuals who follow their father Satan so closely. Will not be forgiven. Remember, the Jewish crowds in general are hearing these words. And many of them, it seemed, were still trying to make up their minds about Jesus. They've asked the question, is this the Messiah? Is this the Son of God? Could this be the Son of God? And we know that the disciples even were confused at times about what Jesus was actually doing. They, They didn't understand. They loved him, followed him faithfully, but even they didn't understand all the time exactly what he had come to earth to do. And so Jesus says here, I think, for them, not particularly for the Pharisees, there's no hope for them. Jesus makes it clear here. They're a brood of vipers. They've sinned against the Holy Spirit. They blaspheme the Holy Spirit and the coming of the kingdom. They won't be forgiven. Their judgment is, has been made. But these other people, the crowds, the disciples, they're listening. They're still making up their minds about this Christ who is here before them. And so for them, I, I think, Jesus says here, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man even will be forgiven. This is us. This is us today. This is every generation of believers across time. We sinned against the Son of Man. We have spoken against the Son of Man. We have committed all types of sins. And yet they have been forgiven. Just as Jesus says, they will be forgiven. We have sinned, we have blasphemed in all kinds of ways. We have done this against Jesus himself, the Son of Man, but he forgave us. He forgave us of our sins. How did he do this? By dying for us. By being crucified as a blasphemer. He was crucified as one who blasphemed God, even though he never sinned, and we are forgiven. That's what Jesus says here. Whoever sins against the Son of Man will be forgiven. And this is true. You are forgiven because of what the Son of Man has done. He died as a man for our sins. Now this offer of forgiveness was held out here to anyone who was listening except the Pharisees, the hard-hearted Pharisees. Their fate was sealed. When Jesus says here, every sin and blasphemy, he was referring to all kinds of sins. Now, this is good news for us, right? All kinds of sin. Even the sin that maybe you think, there's no way God could forgive me of that. No, Jesus says all kinds of sin. Every sin. Every sin against the Son of Man will be forgiven. That is you and me. Every sin will be forgiven because of the blood of the Son of Man that was shed on the cross. We've sinned against the Son of Man in all kinds of ways, but through faith in Christ, we are forgiven, accepted, and that will never change. Now, with this offer of forgiveness out there, though, this is an offer to the crowds. Every sin will be forgiven against the Son of Man. The Jewish crowds also had the words of the Pharisees in their ears, right? So they're hearing Jesus, and they're hearing every sin will be forgiven against the Son of Man. They see the works that he has done. They're still listening to him. But then they have the words of the Pharisees still rattling around in their ears. He 
casts out demons by the prince of demons. He can't be trusted. He's, he walks with the devil. He walks with, in the demonic realm. That's who he's associated with. Which, where, which way do we go? What, what decisions do we make about our interpretation of Jesus and what we think about Christ? Well, Jesus was giving them a stern warning. As they're teetering back and forth, could this be the son of David? Are the Pharisees, uh, do they, is there substance to what the Pharisees are saying? Is he, should we discount what he's doing? Is he some kind of maniac? Is, is he in league with the demons? As they're teeter-tottering between these, uh, these decisions, between these thoughts about Christ, Jesus gives them these words. Every sin against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. The Pharisees, their fate is sealed. They have proven by their arrogant blasphemy against the power of the Spirit revealed in the miracles in this way and by their fighting against the coming of the kingdom. They have proven that they belong to the devil. And Jesus says that at other times. Your father, the devil. You sin like your father, the devil. You are a brood of vipers. Meaning, Jesus speaking out of his divine knowledge of their true hearts is saying, your fate is sealed. But for the rest of you, who will you align yourselves with? Jesus is basically saying. The Pharisees are doomed to destruction. Or will you align yourself with the Son of Man who stands here ready to forgive you? Every sin against the Son of Man will be forgiven, whatever those sins may be. Now for us, friends, I don't think it would benefit us very much here in these words to try and identify, and this is what I've heard and seen done with these types of sayings in scripture, it wouldn't benefit us very much to try and identify particular sins that people make today as, and try to categorize them as sins against the Holy Spirit. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. I don't think that this is the, the point of these verses, that it, there are categorical sins against the Holy Spirit that people can commit that will not ever be forgiven. And we've, hopefully we've got to stay away from those sins, otherwise we might not be forgiven by Jesus. That is, that is, I don't think that is the point of these verses. Rather, we, what, how I think we should think about this is, is this. We as the church, 2,000 years down the road from all of these events taking place, right? The initial coming of the kingdom we would do well to recognize that there are individuals in the world whose consciences are seared. There are those who are in league with the devil. They follow the beast. They are doomed. We don't know who those people are. Jesus does. He is the judge. He will separate the goats from the sheep. He deals with them now, and he will deal with them in the age to come, just like he dealt with the Pharisees, and just like he will deal with the Pharisees in the age to come. Their sins will, against the Holy Spirit at this time and the coming of the kingdom will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. A better position for us is on the other side, though, friends, and this is what we should take away from this. Let us, as the church, as those who have been forgiven by the Son of Man, let us point people to Jesus, the Son of Man, crucified for sinners. Let us repeat these words, every sin against the Son of Man will be forgiven. 
If you believe, if you repent and believe, every type of sin, every sin will be forgiven if you come by faith to the Son of Man. This one who was crucified for sinners stands ready to forgive all kinds of sins and blasphemies. That's, that, that is more, I think, uh, that is more of a stance, more of a position that we can put ourselves in and defend biblically uh, as we look at these, wor- these verses rather than trying to find particular sins that if you commit them, then there's no hope for you. No, that, that's not what Jesus is saying. Rather, let us stand in Christ, by the blood of Christ, recognizing that our sins are forgi- have been forgiven, and he stands ready to forgive any kinds of sins from anyone if they would repent and believe. This is the one who was crucified for us, the one who prayed even for his enemies while dying on the cross. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. That should be our posture in the world. To Christ be all praise and glory now and forever.